welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. And I found myself, for lack of a better word, buying into some of that and even having some negative experiences with certain groups and realizing, oh, I guess that validates um, their perception. I guess that validates this bias that I'm, that I'm hearing and, and seeing others um, carry around with them. But then at the same time, I would get to know entrusting relationships, people from those groups. And I would say, I, I, I felt like I have no bias against them. I know them. I like them. I, I have, but it still didn't prohibit me from holding a general bias against the group for those that I had no relationship with. Really quick before we get started, uh, some of you guys have been asking to hear more of my story uh, as your host, Caben Kramer, and I actually just recently had the opportunity to be on a podcast that I love a lot. It's the Dad Tired Podcast hosted by Jared Lopes, and in that episode, which just dropped yesterday, you can hear a lot more about who I am and my story and some of what led me to actually starting this podcast and some of the story behind that. So if you're at all curious about that, head over to Dad Tired. Make sure you subscribe and leave a rating for Jared because it's an amazing podcast. It's got tons of fantastic content. Head over there right now and then also go ahead and listen to this episode and subscribe here because we have got a lot of great content coming your way this late summer and early fall. And with that, back to our regularly programmed episode. I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait for you to meet our guests. They are fantastic and the conversation only gets better. Hi, my name is John and I work in healthcare running private practices for doctors. Additionally, I started a nonprofit that's focused on medical projects in places of great need, usually overseas. I've been married for 21 years, and I have four kids who have already clearly exceeded me in giftedness. I still feel very young inside, although my body is telling me otherwise. I'm trying not to let that slow me down. I have a business degree, but most of what I've learned, I feel I learned through seven years living overseas, as well as uh, by running all aspects of a small business. My hope is to honor Jesus in all I do, my inside, my outside, those I live with, those I work with. And if I could clone myself and do two occupations, I'd either write books or build custom furniture. Hey there, I'm Christopher. I'm a philosophy professor and entrepreneur. Part-time, I run an online learning company called The Philosophical Life. I try to make philosophy accessible to lifelong learners and applicable to everyday life. I'm also a stay-at-home dad. I have a three-month-old son and another son due in October. I received my BA, MA, and PhD in philosophy. I'm also a theist, which is interesting because most philosophers are atheists. And if I could clone myself and do a completely different occupation, I'd be a crab fisherman on the Bering Sea. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer, 
farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the Feather River. I'm a husband and a father to two awesome kids. I identify as a white male and I'm loving my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying over from one episode to the next. Like if the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. And if those friends were left a slip of paper from the previous loafers at the table by which to begin their chat. So here's the note left on that proverbial table by our previous guests, and it serves as the jumping off point for this episode. have a board of directors uh, that oversees the university and then there's a president that reports to the board and under the president's all the you know executive leaders and you know we have 17,000 employees um there is certain structure to it that you could look at an org chart or you could say like this is the responsibility or this is how it works here um but i think all of us know when you walk into a room you know someone's the ultimate influencer in that room and has the authority and, and really has the power um, to leverage and, and push decisions in a certain way. And with that lead in, here's our conversation with John and Christopher as we explore introspective growth as white men. Enjoy the ride. Came in the first thing that came to my mind um, was related to the word control specifically. I've been accused of being a control freak um, in a micro sense. It's the little things, and and it's usually my family that accuses me of that. My wife can usually tell that something has gone out of control at work if I come home and try to assert my authority or assert my control over something really stupid, right? Like loading the dishwasher the right way. In case there's any lunatics listening, there is a right way. I feel like something that I heard when you were speaking was that there might be a desire within you, maybe within all of us, that says if we're not experiencing control within these certain domains where we expect control, we begin to seek control in other domains that we might be able to force our way into controlling. Am I, am I hearing what you're saying in that? Yeah, I, I think that at least for myself, what I seek often is a sense of stability and normalness. And when I don't have control, I think it, it starts to feel like incompetence, um, whether that's work, for example, start to feel like I must be doing something wrong. I must not be good at what I'm doing. I must not have anticipated this right. I must not be reading people well. I must have completely missed this situation. And so maybe to regain that sense of um, adequacy, I try to find some other area to um, exert my control, right? Some area that like stands no chance against me, um, like the dishwasher, just something so easy that I can dominate um, and sometimes I try to dominate the people I love the most, which usually doesn't go well, but they usually feel like easy targets 
to try to regain that stability and that, that normalness. All right. So I just have to ask, walk us through the correct way to load a dishwasher. Now, okay, but now you're getting into like brand and design, right? I mean, every dishwasher is different. So I'd have to see a diagram. <laughs> that's, that's amazing that like it is so specific that it can't even be generalized. Like it's not just like you put the silverware here and the plates there. It's like dialed. Yeah, absolutely. Depends on like the shape and dimensions of your plates and your bowls too, you know? For me, the way that control works itself out in my life is in the area where I have some sort of expertise or the area that I'm most comfortable with and most able to exert my authority over. So for me, that's philosophy. So if I feel like my home life is out of control, my young son is just having a rough day, he's little, he's teething, my wife and I aren't seeing eye to eye, then I'll want to dive into this pure rational area that everything is clean. Everything is, even if it's messy, logically, it's still somewhat sanitized. And, and that is like a solace for me, even when life is messy and it's completely out of control, there is an area where I feel like I can exert some sort of influence and make a difference in an immediate, tangible way. One of the things I've been thinking about with power and control was that power exists structurally, but authority is given relationally or communally. There's a sense that even if someone is told to the community by the structure of the community, this is the person with power, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have authority over the people in that community because maybe the people don't trust them. Maybe the people, uh, I think it comes back a lot to trust. And if they don't trust the person in power, then that person doesn't have very much authority. So there's this interesting relationship between power and authority, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. It sounds like, to me, an important part of authority is permission. So a person might be in power, and if, if as you said, they're not trustworthy and you second guess their use of their power, maybe you even view a lot of their use of power as abuse, then you will inherently try to resist them having authority in your life through the exercise of their power. It is like you have to earn the right to have authority over someone's life. And when you've done that through responsible use of power, then perhaps that person gives you permission to have authority over their life. That you, you talked about a responsible use of power. There's a lot of ways I could frame that, and I'm just going to frame it in maybe the most volatile way I possibly can. So right now in America, we have the daytime murder of George Floyd, we have ongoing protests and some riots. We have this national consciousness that's reacting to what is perceived as an irresponsible use of power. 
And what's interesting in looking at many different cases of police brutality and uh, the killing of black people by police officers is that a lot of times it was very legal that there were circumstances and structures that actually said it was a responsible use of power according to the law. And yet as a community, as a nation of people, there's this, we, we are responding as a people saying, no, it's not a responsible use of power. It's an irresponsible use of power. So that makes me wonder who gets to define what is a responsible use of power and how does a community interact with that? There's an example that comes to mind. There was a case, I believe it was in New Jersey, where it was a hot spot for criminal activity and abuse of power by police. And what wound up happening is one of the local pastors decided to, instead of just staying in the church, he started holding like essentially community gatherings, barbecues, and invited the police officers to come to the barbecues. So instead of people over time not knowing who was policing them, the people came to recognize the police officers. And through recognizing that, not only crime went down, but also abuse of power by the police went down because they felt like they were part of the community. So I think a community model where there's a reaching out of both sides, those in power and those who are under the power, is important for there to be power used truly for the benefit of the people and the community. Christopher, I think that that's really interesting. The thought that came to my mind when you were saying that is that it seems like the, the difference maker there was relationship. Um, that's not profound in and of itself, but um, it seems like it's, it's a lot easier to abuse power or authority when you're able to objectify, um, whether consciously or, or subconsciously, you're objective, objectifying the target of your abuse. But as soon as that target is known, um, or no longer just an, an object, it's a lot harder to do that. And I, and I, that, that's what I gathered from your, uh, from your story there, that it was the relationship, the lack of objectification that created a different response. Yeah, and my mind went to a very similar place, and I, I love that we're tracking on this. Because there there was something, Christopher, that you said about being known. And there seems to be a very real human limit to knowing. One could argue that maybe we can't even know our own selves, let alone anyone else. That might be a little too esoteric for this conversation at this point. But thinking of just being able to know people. Um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, of course, is dedicated to this entire topic. Um, but this idea that once you are known, it changes the framework of morality, legality, obligation, duty, everything else 
including how we use power. And there is the reason I, I think there's a real human limit to our ability to know and be known because I suspect, and I'm curious, I'm saying this to solicit some feedback here from you guys, that in order to know and be known, we have to be present and have some attention given to the other, right? We have to be in the same physical space or at least the same communicative space. Maybe this counts here over computers as being present to one another, maybe not, but it requires being present. And then it requires some amount of our attention and it requires both of those things in some sustained amount of time. And so then that makes me think, how realistic is it for us to ever hope that power will be used responsibly in any system where you can't be present and known? That's a great question. And it might only be reasonable to expect a responsible use of power in a system that inherently kind of creates distance uh, between the knower and the known if there's actually some in some way you have built into the system a some sort of friction and I say this in reference to the workings of implicit bias in policing. So people will say that cops aren't racist because they don't explicitly hold attitudes that associate negative stereotypes with certain people like African Americans, and yet they are part of a system that promotes sometimes promotes the sort of knee-jerk reactions that lead to discriminatory behavior like you know stopping african-american people more often than white people uh, racial profiling a lot lots of different things that have statistically been shown to be the case and so what this researcher from stanford uh, showed, and I believe her name is Laura Eb Eberhardt, she showed that if you add friction to the system, you can actually counteract abuses of power and through the operation of these implicit biases. So she's a, she's a professor at Stanford and she worked with the Oakland Police Department to Instead of when they are doing a chase on foot with someone, instead of chasing that person into a backyard or into a, a blind alley, which they used to do, which would activate the implicit biases because they'd be in threat mode and be more likely to shoot. Um, there were a lot more officer-involved shootings. They actually added friction to the system at the level of setting up a perimeter and not jumping into a backyard or a blind alley and instead uh, sort of removing the actors of the system from those sorts of things that can lead to 
an irresponsible use of power. And in fact, that's what, what happened. Officer-involved shootings went down. And overall, the Oakland Police Department ended up becoming a better system for policing. Okay, Ben, I, I think maybe you've had a shared experience with me um, since we've both spent at least some time overseas. And, you know, I realized, I realized pretty shortly after moving to Eastern Europe that biases run pretty deep across a lot of cultures. And, you know, Eastern Europe had a lot of relatively small countries smashed together with a shared but very volatile history. Um, you know, nobody agreed on the same border. Everybody had a slightly different version of this war and that war and this disagreement and that disagreement. And what that resulted in was a real, a real fracturing of different um, ethnic divides and cultural divides, some of which an outsider wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between these groups of people visually. They may have looked very similarly, but based on accent or, or region um, or just basic blood, um, they had very, very deep divides. And I found myself, for lack of a better word, buying into some of that and even having some negative experiences with certain groups and realizing, oh, I guess that validates um, their perception. I guess that validates this bias that I'm, that I'm hearing and, and seeing others um, carry around with them. But then at the same time, I would get to know in trusting relationships, people from those groups. And I would say, I, I, I'm going to use the gypsy culture, for example, because that's one of the big ones that I interacted with over there. I knew gypsies personally, and I felt like I have no bias against them. I know them. I like them. I, I have gypsies as friends. But it still didn't prohibit me from holding a general bias against the group for those that I had no relationship with. So it was, it was really that, um, that forced interaction that removed biasy for me in certain circumstances. But it, it, it was almost a volume thing. Like there had to be enough relationship with enough people from that group for me to go, wait a minute, this bias doesn't even hold true in most cases. Um, and, and I don't know if I ever got to that volume, frankly, but um, I, I noticed that that was, that was the direction that my, my heart was headed in um, with my own biases towards a group that I previously had no connection to. Yeah, I can definitely echo that experience in the Balkans, um, listening to Serbs tell their story of the war versus Albanians or Slovenians tell their story of the war uh, is very different. And what I found, I, I think about my years living in East Africa. One thing that I noticed was, yeah, with every personal trusting relationship that I built, it helped break down that specific instance of bias. But like you said, I still carried a generalized bias that oftentimes went unchecked. But what I realized was that for every, every time I entered a situation where it was an unknown factor, that's pretty much just controlled by the framework of stereotypes. So let me give an example from California here, going into a public park and seeing a group of people skateboarding and smoking marijuana. All right. That's all we know. We see that they're 
several different races. They're all maybe late teens, early 20s, maybe even into their 30s, not quite sure. This is all we know. We just see them in the park. They're skateboarding, smoking marijuana. Well, that creates a framework of stereotypes. And until I refuse to give in to those stereotypes and build some kind of relationship to determine is this particular set of individuals beholden to the stereotype or not, I really don't have permission to make that judgment, and yet I do. And what I notice is when, so I'm also put in stereotypes. I'm a white male. I'm large set, and I have a shaved head, which tends to put me in a certain category of beliefs. And I've seen people begin speaking to me as though I was going to agree with them, and then they're shocked to find out that I don't. And then I found other people very hesitant to get to know me because they think I hold a certain worldview um, of white nationalism and, you know, kind of the stereotypical Aryan superiority because I'm about as Aryan as it gets. And I do not hold those views at all. I'm about as opposite of those views as possible. But until someone gets to know me, they have no reason to believe that I exist outside that stereotype. Like it's actually smarter for them to presume that I'm a white supremacist and actually interact with me based on that assumption until I disprove it to them. And what I find is that every time I go into an unknown situation that's only framed by stereotypes, that rebuilding has to happen. That I have to reestablish, no, I don't operate in the world that way. I see the world differently. And same vice versa, right? So let's get back to the skateboarders in the park smoking marijuana. I have to go rebuild an understanding of them every time I interact and see a different group of skateboarders smoking marijuana. But that's a really exhausting manual effort. And so I think our minds in some ways say, well, gosh, it's just a lot easier to assume all skateboarders who smoke marijuana and all white men who are broad set and bald headed operate in, in the same category as other people like them. But it's so destructive when we do that. Right. And, and that's the effect that we're seeing, especially when that is baked into our institutions and we begin to use those mental shortcuts as institutional and policy shortcuts it becomes incredibly destructive, particularly, and this is the case, of course, in U.S. history, when there's one predominant group who holds one set of stereotypes making the policy for all the other express groups within the nation. And so it needs to stop. It needs to change. And yet it's there's so much inertia and momentum when every interaction has to be rebuilt from the ground up uh, is it's really difficult. And yeah, so in Eastern Europe or in East Africa, um, every time I met someone, I would have to rehearse to them who I was because they began the interaction based on stereotypes. And I really can't fault them for that. And I'm fortunate enough that oftentimes the stereotypes were either neutral or in my benefit overseas. Um, but obviously what we're seeing in America is that oftentimes those stereotypes are not neutral and are very much to the detriment 
of people. So we can't always peaceably just have a pleasant conversation over tea to explain why those stereotypes don't apply. And there needs to be wider, more conscious efforts. But I notice that, that it's that just because I've worked out, I've worked myself out of the bias on some relationships doesn't mean I'm anywhere close to being done with the work of actually overcoming that bias in total within myself. That's a great point. And what came to mind for me is just the exhaustion piece. Assuming everything you just said is true, it makes me feel like it's impossible to overcome. Why? Because I'm exhausted. (laughs) I mentioned that I'm a stay-at-home dad uh, to a young toddler, and I'm also doing the online business and trying to get that going and and then trying to be a good husband and son and so on and just wearing all these hats. And so the thought of also doing the hard work that is required for me to truly combat these biases that I have still, it almost feels insurmountable in some ways. So I just almost want to throw up my hands because it's like, why bother if I have to, as you mentioned with the smoking pot example, every time I see a group of kids smoking pot in a skate park, in order to overcome that stereotype, I need to get to know them. So then I need to take time out of my day and I need to go over there and I need to interact or at least say some few things and just kind of get to know them a little bit. Maybe they're great kids. They're just happen to smoke pot and skate, which are fun activities too, to a certain degree. But that just sounds like so, if not just exhausting, impractical. So I'm just wondering, I'd like to throw out there to you guys, like, what is even possible for overcoming these biases? How, what sort of practical steps could we take that aren't completely overwhelming, especially if we can't really give our attention to everyone, we can't get to know everyone, we can't be known by everyone. So how do we sort out what are the relevant places and times and contexts to like make a stand against that natural inclination to just do the mental shortcut and put a person in a category because they fit some kind of stereotype? Man, I love that question. I love that question because it has been beating me up for the last couple of weeks. And I've been doing such a poor job in general managing the reality of that question in my own life. One small thing, and I know it's very small, is when I'm able to say to myself, no matter how many trusting relationships I have, within this category, I also acknowledge that I still carry bias towards this category. As soon as I become conscious of that, I can just log it as a conscious thought and say, okay, I recognize that thought, but I'm not going to let that thought determine how I view this situation. I'm going to look for some other factors because as soon as I become aware of it, I become aware of how it's influencing my perception of the environment. 
let's hang with that analogy. Kids skateboarding in a park, smoking marijuana. If I'm aware, oh, I hold certain stereotypes about what that means. The moment I become conscious that I hold those stereotypes is the moment those stereotypes lose their decision-making power over my response, unless I then consciously choose to let that stereotype. And of course, since I'm not someone who wants to be defined by stereotyping people, then I'm not very likely to allow that stereotype to determine my response. I, I start looking for other indicators without necessarily having to take time of my day to go meet them or anything else, but just are there other indicators that might let me know everything's fine or things aren't fine? Christopher, you said something a minute ago um, that was intriguing to me, um, and it reminded me of, of something that we deal with in our uh, our medical specialty that we work with, and that that is the fact that our brains are inherently lazy, and our brains like to build neuro shortcuts, and um, and that's actually a survival technique, right? That we've developed. Our, our brain knows that it's got limited bandwidth. And it likes to take stimuli in and categorize it very quickly so that it can move on to other things, right? And, and perceive other priorities. Um, we work with people who are experiencing what we would call a visual neuro disconnect. So these are people whose eyeball technically functions correctly, but their brain has, um, broken the connection between the eyeball. It's no longer in control of the eyeball. It no longer wants to receive stimuli um, from the eyeball. And, and that's, that's partially because the eyeball is, is either overwhelming the brain with too much of something, and the brain says, I can't get on with life if you're going to keep sending me all that information, so I'm going to start ignoring you. And what we see is then physiological changes. We see the eyes start to droop. We see the eyes start to turn in or turn out. It gets what we call lazy, basically. It just it stops functioning the way it should. And one of the only ways we can combat that is through forced stimuli. It seems weird because that's sometimes what caused the brain to ignore it. But we have to basically force healthy stimuli back to the back to the brain through that eye that is struggling and, and force the brain to deal with the data that that eye is going to send it. And eventually what the brain finds is it, it, it first of all, it starts to allow those pathways to be rebuilt. Um, it, but it's forced to reckon with this data that it's being fed and it has to make sense of it. It can't, um, do the default categorization. It has to find new categories for this information and it has to balance it. Um, with the information it's getting from the other eye so that they can work together. And then that's when you regain functionality like depth perception and hand-eye coordination, um, very critical functions to you know basic human existence, which some people live without. It's not a perfect analogy, but, um, but it, it reminded me of just the categorization that we tend to do and the only way that we can often break that down is by forcing that stimuli, by forcing that conversation, by forcing engagement um, in, in order to 
break those categories in a sense. Our brain is always going to fight to form new categories. It's going to always go back to the, the lazy approach of, oh, I know that person. I know that person. I know that type. It wants to do that. Um, and we have to actually actively fight against it. That's super interesting given what is going on in our country at this time. And I feel like that's what we see right now with the protests going on for Black Lives Matter and for just the systemic racism that has been part of the United States history. And protest is a way of forcing the United States as a system to reckon with this data. The data is the long history of injustice. The data is that it's clear, actually, the, the actual stats um, show the the inequality. And yet the system itself doesn't want to deal with it. The system itself wants to keep functioning on the inequalities that have allowed it to prosper, so to speak. But the reality is the system is broken. And when you have someone in power to kind of return to one of the things we talked about, the power dynamic, when you have someone in power that roots out of the system, out of the United States, those who are holding on to the explicit racism and and stereotypes, and, and in fact wanting those things to continue, then it f- it forces the system itself to deal with that. Um, so in a way, it is true that abuse of power or not being a responsible leader is is bad in the short term. But the ironic sort of twist is that if you have someone who is just abusive enough with their power and and also is a narcissist and is completely unhinged, it can actually bring out of the system the things that need to that were always there that were were contributing and feeding into the system to um, to allow hopefully the system to get health again. Like hopefully when the brain starts properly getting the signals from the eye, the eye in, in, is no longer lazy, perhaps if if that's the case, and so the system of the brain and the eye. Um, restores to health. Hopefully, the United States as a system will, through this process, through these protests, through the the systemic and overt racism that's been forced to surface, uh, hopefully the system itself, this is a cleansing. And it's unfortunate what had to cause that to happen. Like you mentioned George Floyd's death. Um, But even though those things happen and they're horrific and horrible, hopefully the system itself is actually starting to heal. At least that's the hope. Yeah, keeping briefly with the same analogy, just maybe for perspective, again, it's it's only an analogy, but one of the things we find is um, young young people come into us with this neurovisual disconnect. And... Um, the younger they are, the the faster we see results. Um, but yet, the expectations that people have are almost always unrealistic to begin with. 
uh, people come in and they think that, you know, they can spend a couple of weeks um, rebuilding these new pathways, these new ways of thinking and processing, um, only to find out that in most cases, you're looking at a year or more of really hard work. Um, and, and we have patients who come in and maybe that disconnect was caused by something else like a stroke. We have patients who come in who are 80 years old. And what we find is that sometimes rebuilding those pathways takes years. And so I think just, I say all that to say that um, I think I think in some ways we have to be prepared to settle in for a long process um, because I don't think, I don't think it's going to be um, easily won. And, and, and there's so many individual hearts and minds that have to be changed and, and reforged. Um, and, and I wish it wasn't the case, but, you know, realistically speaking, um, it's, it's a long battle. And that's our show. Thank you for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. The second half of my conversation with John and Christopher drops next week. Subscribe to make sure you get that. We go deeper into the Enneagram and get a little bit existential in our own self-examination of our tendency to prioritize projects over people and the impact that has on our relationships and the gaps and flaws we see in ourselves right now. Here is a sneak peek. And again, make sure you subscribe to get the next episode. I can empathize with that because a lot of my arguments with my wife um, come down to me trying to control the narrative. I feel like if I lose the grip on the narrative, then I will in some way lose a sense of myself, as you mentioned, and I will lose respect, either the respect that I think my wife owes me or that I think I need to cling to in order to be whole or to feel good about myself and that's all a facade and it's based in fear and pride a huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project and a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.